Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. We were upset of, about music over the years. I'm, it's a movie. You I didn't don't... realize that there was a trans. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And that they should have artistic freedom. What, I mean, right? You should be and, But look, but artistic freedom, of course, no one's telling them they can't do it. Right. It's just a question of whether, in your world, they have to pay a price. Right. So to speak. <laughs> That's right. All right. Big one. How about Geral- a Bud Light? Geraldo Rivera, <laughs> Kieran Chetri, Tracy Burns, thank you all so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. That does it for us tonight. Thanks for watching. Banfield starts right now with Ashley Dan. I'm Brian Enton in for Ashley tonight. Happy Friday. Thank you for being with us. We've got a very, very busy, action-packed hour. You know, every day we find out more disturbing information about the Long Island serial killer. And now there are new reports that all the killings may have taken place inside Rex Hurman's home. Right there in that nice, fancy neighborhood where so many police officers lived. Uh, Apparently, no one noticed a thing. We're going to talk about that. Also, serial killer BTK is now writing letters from jail talking about how much he actually has in common with Hurman, even calling him his clone. And then there's the new video interview with Hurman from before he was an accused serial killer. We've actually got a body language expert on the show tonight who will go over the video with us looking for warning signs, looking to see if there was anything that someone could have spotted uh, early on before uh, Hurman was actually caught. Also tonight, if you watch News Nation regularly, you probably know the name Tracy Walder. She is our badass national security contributor. She was in the CIA and the FBI. I mean, think about it. How many people do you actually know who are in both the CIA and FBI? She is really just an amazing woman who I've gotten to know very, very well. Well, tonight she has a personal story that she is going to share with us. Her little daughter's teacher was arrested on some very disturbing charges. And now Tracy is on a mission to make sure that no other troubled teachers slip through the cracks similarly to the way uh, it happened in the situation she was involved in. They call it pass the trash, which is when these dangerous teachers quietly leave their jobs and move to other school districts. We are exposing the problem tonight on the show, and she will join us live uh, coming up in just a little while. But we begin tonight, of course, uh, with the latest on the Long Island serial killer case. It has now been eight days since police charged Rex Herman with the murders of three women, and the case has really taken some wild twists and turns, even just over the last 24 hours or so. The 59-year-old architect and married father of two who commuted by train from Massapequa Park to Manhattan every day was hiding in plain sight 
for over a decade in a neighborhood teeming with police officers, both retired and working, an area uh, that some even called Copland because so many police officers lived there. Well, his alleged double life has now caught the eye of one of the most prolific serial killers ever, Dennis Rader, also known as the BTK killer. Rader says he and Hureman have a lot in common. He even said that Hureman is a clone of him. Use that word, clone. We're going to get uh, to more on that in just a moment. But first, I want to focus on Rex Hureman's home. The dilapidated ranch is where the alleged killer spent his childhood and raised his own two kids with his wife of over 25 years. It sits just six miles away from Gilgo Beach, where the remains of four women strangled and wrapped in burlap were found in 2010. Police have camped out at the home since Hureman's arrest last week, bringing out a number of horrors from inside that house, particularly they have been carrying things out from the basement. And now it appears we are starting to figure out why and what is going on behind the scenes. Multiple outlets say investigators are now looking into all of the killings, every single one of them actually happening inside that house. And sources have even been telling CNN that they've been working on that theory since the spring, around the time when they started investigating him. They say one of the main reasons the search of the home is taking so long is because investigators are meticulously combing for trace evidence that may be linked to the victims. Investigators also believe that by committing the killings at the house, Hureman would have had control of the environment and also access to materials that were found at the crime scene, including tape and those burlap bags that we've talked so much about. And let's also not forget that during every single murder, police say Hureman's family was out of town. It's another suggestion uh, that he may have killed the women inside his home without any of his family members, his wife or his children, actually knowing that any of it was happening. That theory does line up what with uh, with former es- escort Nicole Brass told News Nation this week about her date with Hureman eight years ago. She says Hureman asked her to come to his home, but she declined. Then instead they met at a restaurant. Now, the theory could also explain why a neighbor told News Nation that he saw Hureman burning things in his backyard, digging in his yard, and keeping very, very odd hours. We reached out to Suffolk County District Attorney Ray Tierney uh, about all of this. Here is what he told us, quote, At the time of the arrest, we indicated the causes of death were homicidal violence. The locations of the murders were never specified at this juncture. Uh, if any law enforcement officials are saying anything contrary to that, they do not know what they are talking about. So that was his response to this new reporting uh, that all the murders happened inside uh, the house. I want to go now to News Nation's Sloan Glass. Uh, she joins us live from outside Rex Hureman's home tonight. Amazing. I mean, we're a week out, Sloan. And look at, look, at, look at the scene behind you. I mean, the whole area is still blocked off. I see the police standing there, still very, very active. What do you make of this, uh, this statement from the district attorney? Uh, sort of doesn't say that the reporting is wrong, that all the murders happened in the house, but also seems to be trying trying to calm everybody down. Right, Brian, he essentially shut down that theory when we asked him. But look, the lead investigator is just trying to protect the integrity of this investigation, understandably. As you said, there's still a lot of activity. It's eight days in and there is no sign of investigators leaving this home. Now, it is stomach turning to think that those crimes could have taken place in the house that Rex Hureman lived in with his wife and two children. You also heard the account from the former escort saying that Hureman had asked her to come back to his house. So we're just going to have to wait and see what evidence comes out.
Do we have any idea, Sloan? I mean, we're looking at the video now. They're in the hazmat suits going in and out. They've been in and out of that house. Uh, do we have any idea how long they plan to continue to, to investigate the house, how long that whole area will be blocked off? It's like reading tea leaves. I've asked the police here. They say that they will remain on site for as long as it takes. Now, we have not seen as much activity today as we've seen in days in the past, but our view has also been obstructed by police cars. So there really is no telling at this point how long they will be here. It just doesn't look like anyone's going any place anytime soon. And there has been this criticism, Sloan, that an arrest uh, should have come earlier, uh, that they had forensic evidence even a decade ago. Uh, what's the response to that? That is pretty alarming. It is, if true. And that evidence comes from Amber Costello and her case. Now, Amber Costello is the fourth victim to be associated with Rex Huerman. She disappeared in 2010. And not long after Amber Costello went missing, a witness came forward to describe a first-generation Chevy Avalanche seen in her driveway. They also go into great detail about that driver and what he looked like, describing someone in their mid-40s wearing 70s-style glasses. They even describe him as an ogre. Now, I spoke with a legislator here in Suffolk County, Rob Trotta, who told me and Trotta had been a detective at the time in Suffolk County from 1988 to 2013, helping to cover that investigation. Then investigators who he spoke to did not know at the time of those two main leads, the driver and the truck associated with Costello. Well, you would think, OK, there's the phone calls in people. there's phone calls in Manhattan. He's probably taking the train. He's near the train station. Let's put 10 guys on the train and look for someone six foot four or six foot six. They're going to stick out like a sore thumb. Let's check the parking lot. Let's check the neighborhood, you know, if we can find this car. You know, I don't know what was done, but, you know, clearly something wasn't done correctly. Because once they got this Chevy Avalanche, the whole thing fell into place. Brian, there's also been a lot of criticism about corruption in the department, and it is well documented. The stories are unbelievable about the former police chief, James Burke, who was taken over as police chief uh, several months after the bodies in Gilgo Beach were found. Now, he had been caught in his car while on duty sleeping with a sex Mm -hmm. worker. And there are accusations that Burke had prevented the FBI from working with investigators here once they found out that they were looking into him and his personal matters. Yes, Lone, that is one of the things that I have found the most fascinating and disturbing when you dig into this case uh, past just the headlines of the last week is the way this case has been treated over the last decade before this special task force became involved. And you mentioned it. I mean, the former police chief telling the FBI that they don't even want help on the case. It's no wonder it took so long uh, to get solved. And now there are these new uh, allegations that that not only was the case mishandled, but there was this whole other scandalous side of this involving possible prostitutes and, and the police department. Have you learned anything about that? Right. The story and the timeline is just crazy when you start to look into it, because we have James Burke, who had been caught in his car when he was sergeant in the 90s. And then shortly after these bodies are found on Gilgo Beach, he is promoted to police chief. So he's not even fired after being caught 
on duty in his police car having sex with sex workers, but he's assigned to a case that involves the murder of sex workers. And investigators have said that that could have changed the outlook and how the severity in which people were looking at this case and also uh, looking into Burke. In 2013, the FBI began to investigate him for accusations of battering a suspect and also trying to cover up that battery. He had been convicted of those crimes in 2016. This came after a thief had broken into his car, stolen a duffel bag full of sex toys and pornography. Yeah, look, I mean, even more is going to come to light. I mean, we we found out a little bit about the past when it comes to this police department, but uh, even more is going to come to light now. Sloan Glass, thank you so much for uh, for coming on tonight. Uh, It's always good to see you, uh, and we'll see you again soon. Thank you for being outside the scene too late tonight. You never know anything can happen. I mean, they're out there still pulling things out. Okay, the notorious uh, BTK serial killer Dennis Rader uh, is speaking out from prison now, calling Rex Hurman, quote, a clone of me. In a letter to Fox News, Raider writes, I was arrested at age 59, married, two kids, husband, dad, longtime serial killer, stalker, used electronic devices, lives in a neighborhood undetected. Hureman was taken down by DNA and electronics, his downfall, much like me. That's what BTK said. Yeah, he goes on to say he predicted many years ago that the Gilgo Beach murderer was someone just like him. And Raider is currently serving a life sentence for ruthlessly killing 10 people in Wichita, Kansas over the course of 17 years. My next guest knows Dennis Raider and the minds of serial killers really like no one else. Uh, Dr. Catherine Ramsland is a professor of forensic psychology and author of many books, including How to Catch a Killer. And she joins me now. Dr. Ramsland, it's always nice to see you. Thank you for coming on again tonight, especially with this new development that that BTK uh, has written this letter calling the Long Island serial killer a clone of him. I mean, you know BTK really like unlike anyone else with all, you know, you've dealt with him face to face through your studies. I mean, what do you, what do you make of this new letter? Doesn't surprise me. Uh, first, Raider used role models himself. He was um, influenced by Harvey Glattman and H.H. Holmes, to name a few. But he also wants to have some spotlight in this. He wants people to know that he made the right prediction and he wants people to know how similar uh, Hureman is to him. I I think he really just likes to have the attention back on him. What he did do though is uh, he he lays out all these parallels and what surprised me is he forgot one and that is that he, when he was talking to the police right before he was caught, he had sent them a note telling them to address him as Rex. And by that, he meant they were to talk to his private parts. So Rex also is a parallel in this case, a very odd little fact. So Rex is, if I'm following you correctly, and, and you know, I don't want to say anything uh, out of turn, but Rex is the name that he had for his penis, BTK. Yes, that's right. So um, interesting. I mean, I guess it, just a coincidence that this other guy is now named Rex, but it is interesting that BTK left that out in, in this letter talking about their similarities. Yeah, it kind of surprises me because I think he would, I mean, he, he told it to me, it's in the book. I'm surprised that he forgot about that. Yeah, very, very strange. Um, I want to ask you, it's interesting 
both with BTK and with the Long Island serial killer. They both seem to sort of taunt the victims from what we know uh, and even taunt the media to an extent. What do you make of that? What do you make of that similarity between the two? Well, there, there actually are some differences, some pretty significant differences. Um, Raider entered homes of ordinary people to murder them. Um, he wasn't looking for sex workers, which was just what Herman was doing. He didn't really show disdain for his victims the way Herman is doing. Um, so there are some differences. Plus, Raider handed the police the, the computer disk that got him caught. That's very different from what happened with Yerman. So to, to kind of put these similarities out there is a bit disingenuous. It, he, he really tripped himself up in a way that was not the case with this Long Island case. Yeah, and you made a good point about BTK wanting attention. I remember um, with other cases, too, he, he's written letters and it seems like he tries to find these similarities and sort of remain relevant to a certain extent. Is there any chance that um, that the Long Island serial killer and BTK could have corresponded or that um, that he could have been inspired uh, by BTK in some way, do you think? I don't see it. Uh, I certainly hadn't heard of any correspondence um, between them. Um, I think, And Rader would have told me if he had letters from someone like this. I think Rader would like to believe that somebody would copy him, but Herman was so different in the kinds of victims he was going after and what he was doing. I don't really see him looking to Rader as his role model. Um, I don't know that he looked to anyone, but we don't even know if he was motivated in the same way. For all we know, he was motivated by anger or a mission to punish sex workers. We don't know what his motivation was. So he might not be like as much like Raider as Raider thinks. And one of the saddest things, Dr. Ramsland, that I always find in these situations beyond just the, the victims who were killed is the, the family members of the killer. Um, I've gotten to know BTK's daughter and, and heard about what what she's gone through. And now to find out that, um, you know, that, that Herman also has this family, the wife and kids. And now there's this reporting that the murders may have happened in their home when they were on vacation. Um, what do you make of that? I mean, that, that, that's another similarity, I guess. Well, the narcissism is, I mean, they don't really care. They, they claim to love their family members, but they don't really seem to realize that if they're caught, they're destroying them. They're destroying everything. They're embarrassing and humiliating them. And they don't seem to have any sense of that because they are very much attuned to their own needs and, and what they want. And they don't have any clue the kind of devastation they're going to cause to people who are close to them. Yeah. And it's interesting that Rex Hurman's uh, wife has, has already reportedly filed for divorce this this soon after the arrest, um, which I think says a lot. Uh, Dr. Ramsland, thank you so much for coming on tonight. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Okay, we have to take a very quick uh, break, but don't go anywhere. Up next, what police are actually learning about the Long Island serial killer uh, from the arrangements of the victims' bodies. You remember, they were wrapped up, buried close together right there on the side of that road, that remote stretch of Beach Highway. Was it just a place of opportunity, or was the murder making was the murderer actually making a statement by putting them there? The clues left on Gilgo Beach, we're going to go through them uh, when we come back.
so you can get onto your own great feats. Qtenza. Learn more at Qtenza.com. Rex Hurman, the state of New York serial killer suspect, is so far officially connected to just three of the 11 bodies unearthed along that stretch of Long Island Beach called Gilgo Beach. He is the prime suspect in a fourth young woman's death. But as for now, he's facing three counts of first-degree murder and three counts of second-degree murder. Those women, all in their 20s, they were all petite. They were all sex workers who advertised their services on various websites. And their killer buried them all in the same spot wrapped in burlap in what investigators call a cluster. That's the word they use, cluster, right off that road right there. Police are looking at that pattern and the similarities in the victims to potentially connect Rex Hurman to other unsolved deaths in the area. I want to bring in Dr. Scott Bond. He's a criminologist and professor. Uh, He's the author of the book, Why We Love Serial Killers, and he hosts the podcast, Killing Hour with Doc Bond. Also, Billy Jensen, he co-hosts a podcast called Unraveled, which dedicated its entire first season uh, to the Long Island serial killer. Thank you both for being with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Bond, I want to start with you. This, this clustering that police talk about, the fact that the bodies were all found in the same area, something that investigators have labeled a cluster, what do you make of that? Because I would think, you know, if you were a killer, you wanted to get away with it, you would almost want to spread the bodies out. Well, uh, it didn't surprise me at all. And a matter of fact, this is what allowed me to draw my original profile of him 12 years ago. And that is, this is part of his signature as a serial killer. Uh, He is um, so meticulous. And the way he left these bodies um, and in this isolated area, this gave him tremendous psychological and uh, fantasy satisfaction. It probably gave him as much satisfaction as the killings themselves. So, no, it's, it's not surprising. This is very consistent with a psychopathic, narciss- narcissistic individual like this. And he had a line of sight, we've realized, from where he lived over to where uh, the bodies uh, were buried. Dr. Bond, I'm curious, you talk about signature um, Do you think part of his plan was to get caught? Was that part of the whole plan? Is he almost getting a high out of this and the media coverage? Or do you think he really thought he was going to get away with this? Well, yes and no. Is he getting a tremendous high? Did he get a tremendous high throughout his career uh, as he watched the headlines? Without a doubt. This is a, is a classic, uh, uh, what's known as a power control killer. Um, and they crave headlines. They crave uh, media attention. Did he want to get caught? Absolutely not. Um, in fact, it's a great myth about serial killers that they somehow want to get caught. This is their life's work. They love it more than anything else. Why would they want to get caught? They want to relish in this forever. What happens is they either get sloppy like Joel Rifkin did driving around with a decomposing body in his truck, or in this case, technology finally caught up to him and Mm. bit him in the butt, the triangulation of the phones and the DNA. Did he want to get caught? Absolutely not. And that's why he expressed shock when he was uh, when he was apprehended. Interesting, Billy. Um, so we're now eight days out from the arrest. Uh, they've they've still got the three murder charges pending. But a lot of people are wondering about this fourth, the woman named Maureen uh, Brainerd uh, Barnes. Um, and they, they thought that the charges would have come by now. What do you make of it? Do you think they're going to eventually be able to connect him to more? 
Yeah, d- definitely. I think the thing with the first three victims is is that they had his hairs on those victims, so they had um, uh, definitive proof that he was around those victims. The fourth victim, Marine, they didn't have any DNA uh, from him transferred over to her. I think they were trying to work on that case, and they did say that they did rush this arrest because uh, they felt that he might be a danger to society. Uh, rushing being a general term because you know that he's been on their radar for about 15 months now. Well, and they were investigating all of this in secret. They knew it was him for quite some time following around. So who knows what they know behind the scenes now? I mean, Billy, we saw the live pictures at the beginning of our show outside his house where there is still quite a police presence. They've got the whole area blocked off. They've continued to pull things out. They may be connecting more pieces than we even realize, Billy. Well, that's what the, the hope is. Obviously, the two biggest questions that we have now are, is he responsible for the six other bodies on the beach? And is he responsible for any other killings, particularly any other killings between uh, when the four bodies were found and now? And that's going to be a very big question, because if he is, there's been a lot of evidence and a lot of talk that he should have been caught way earlier with the amount of information that the police had. I think he should have. Dr. Bond, is there a chance that he comes clean, that Herman comes clean uh, from behind bars and starts talking to police and giving them information? Yes, it is possible. Um, Again, this is a psychopathic individual, narcissistic, who absolutely craves attention. And if he makes a rational choice looking at the evidence against him and he says the gig is up, then he may hop up on the uh, public stage the way that uh, Dennis Rader BTK did and try to tell the world how wonderful he is and uh, about his his, uh, great life's work. Um, Almost like accepting an award is the way it was described when uh, Rader appeared in court. So it is, yes, it's distinctly possible. Yeah, and is it sort of a thrill for him now to sort of give police little nuggets and create his own little game out of the whole thing? Oh, absolutely. You know, BTK did that. Ted Bundy did that. It's very consistent with these power and control killers who it's it's all about domination. Mm. That's why he toyed with Melissa's uh, sister and tormented her, called her on her sister's own phone to say, look what I'm doing. I have your sister. He's he wants to play cat and mouse um, and destroy human life. That's that's what it's all about. You know, it, it, people are asking, me, is he motivated by sex? Not sex per se. He is a sexual sadist but it's important to understand he was playing god he his goal was to destroy a human life that's what gave him his fantasy thrills that he that he craves uh, it's also disturbing thank you both for being here uh, dr Stop, scott bond and, and billy jensen i appreciate you coming on on a friday night thank you Okay, still to come tonight, uh, education's dirty little secret. This is a story that I'm so bothered by. Teachers facing accusations of sexual abuse, being allowed to quietly move to other districts and keep teaching kids. The parents, students, even the new schools themselves are being told nothing about it. And the problem, it hits very close to home here at News Nation with one of our own contributors, you probably know, who has been living this nightmare, and she is going to explain what happened Uh, when we come back.
You know, it's always hard talking about something sad that happened to someone you know and someone you like. And that's really how I feel uh, about this next story. Tracy Walder, I'll say it again. I said it at the top of the show. She really is just a badass in my eyes. In my eyes. Uh, she's our News Nation national security contributor. She's a former CIA agent and a former FBI agent. She was literally chasing after terrorists for years and all sorts of bad guys in the Middle East. Her career is unbelievable. She's an incredible person and something really, really awful happened to her daughter. Um, She first noticed changes in her three-year-old little girl during the school year. She began to bite her nails until her fingers bled uh, and she blinked obsessively. Her daughter became sad and withdrawn, Tracy noticed, and and Tracy just knew that that something was wrong, Like, like a mom could sense that and she knew it. And when the school year ended, Walder's daughter told her that her preschool teacher, a man named Jason Baldwin, would lock her in the bathroom with the lights off for crying too much. And her daughter's arm was also mysteriously broken at one point. Tracy complained to the Hockaday School in Dallas uh, about the red flags, but says that nothing was done. And this is where this story really gets even more disturbing. The teacher, again, Jason Baldwin, was later arrested on child pornography charges as part of a national investigation by the FBI. He'd been teaching at the prestigious private school uh, in Dallas for six years, teaching preschoolers as young as six months old. When he was arrested, he admitted to purchasing child porn videos using a PayPal account that listed the school's mailing address. Uh, He said he had been addicted to child porn for eight years. Last year, he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Because of Tracy's story, uh, we know that there are red flags. You you heard me say what she spotted happening with with her daughter in that classroom. And that is the scary truth we have realized about schools in this country. Teachers accused of abuse are being allowed to quietly move to other school districts and continue teaching kids. It has a name. It's called Pass the Trash. It's the real name that's used for it. Google it. You'll see it happens more often than you might think. And a lot of times these so-called trash teachers are not caught. They're not punished until it's too late. Last year alone, more than 300 U.S. teachers, kindergarten through high school, were arrested on child sex crimes spanning nearly every state in the country. The total included five principals, three assistant principals, 290 teachers, 26 substitute teachers, and 25 teachers' aides. Those were just the teachers who were caught. Think about that, working in both public uh, and private schools. So how is this happening And how are these dangerous teachers literally slipping through the cracks? Uh, Tracy Walder joins me live now. It's her first time talking about this on TV, this awful ordeal. It's really brave of you to come on and and talk about this, Tracy. I know this isn't necessarily your comfort zone. Normally, we're talking to you about national security um, issues. But, you know, I couldn't believe when you told me the story about what happened to your daughter. I think most people think of you as former FBI agent, former CIA agent. They would think, gosh, nothing like this would ever happen to Tracy. But I think this just shows that, that it can really happen to anyone. Well, thank you so much for having me, Brian, and for really creating an environment where I feel comfortable, quite frankly, talking about this. I appreciate you very much um, for this opportunity. I think, you know, title of CIA and FBI, one thing I do want to add to that is 
I left the FBI actually to pursue a dream of becoming a teacher. And I was a teacher at that very same school um, in which my daughter was abused. I had taught there for about a decade. Um, and so that really complicated all of this um, a lot further. That was something I don't think I ever thought would happen really in my wildest dreams. But after it happened, I started really researching because I'm, I'm not here to diminish the job the teachers are doing. I am one of them. Um, but this is a serious issue that we need to take seriously. And since 2010, really the number of complaints um, about sexual violence in K through 12 schools has, has tripled. And that is very bothersome. And we really have to get to the bottom of why. Yeah, you mentioned you taught at the school. Um, you warned the school about what you were noticing. You even got child services involved. Um, again, you were teaching at the school. And then I just keep thinking back to your history as a, as a CIA agent and an F, a former FBI agent. I mean, did they really just not take you seriously? That's a good question. I, I can't answer that. I don't know, um, you know, because they didn't really do anything um, about my concerns. I'm I, I, Think that they didn't take me seriously. And sometimes I wonder if maybe my, my three-year-old had a little bit of CIA and FBI in her um, and realized um, this teacher, you know, was, was, was highly problematic. Um, but I, I think they didn't, they either didn't take me seriously or quite frankly, it was really shocking to be believed. Yeah, I want to read the statement from the school um, because they released a statement. It says, since learning of the prosecution of Jason Baldwin, uh, the school has undertaken a comprehensive audit conducted by external experts of all relevant policies and practices from hiring protocols to the security of its facilities. Uh, The school will continue to take every step at its disposal to protect the safety and well-being um, of its students. Um, but again, as we mentioned, Tracy, you know, this isn't just about this one particular school. It, it, it's happening around the country. How do we fix this? I mean, how is it possible that these teachers can have these serious disciplinary records and just move to another district or move to another state and they don't even know? So that's a great question. Really, this came out with something called the Every Student Succeeds Act, which was passed under the Obama administration in 2015. And there was a little section on it, section 8546. And really what that does is a provision prohibiting schools from aiding and abetting sexual abuse. So it's saying to schools, hey, if you are allowing a teacher to resign uh, because of these accusations, that will be against the law. But the problem is only four states have really enacted laws um, prohibiting schools from doing this. And I'm not sure if it's because they don't want to or because this is such an obscure provision. But Mm. bringing attention to it, like you're doing right now, is actually really, really helpful. Yeah, I'm just sitting here thinking it, it almost sounds like what went on with the Catholic Church and the sex scandal, like the way they would just move people around to different places and no one really knew in the new place, you know, what had happened uh, w- with the priest in the previous church, kind of like the teachers in this situation. Uh, Tracy, when you found out that this teacher had been arrested for child porn and you already knew what your daughter had gone through and, and the warnings that you were trying to give the school, I mean, I, I can't even imagine, like, what, what was that moment like? 
I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say that that I lost it. And I have told you that before. Um, you know, look, I've served in war zones. I've interrogated terrorists. But you do feel a sense of that you've failed your child. And for me, it was twofold because I had this happening to my own child. But this was also a school that I taught at and I loved and I had a really great track record at. So it was this kind of double-edged issue um, that I was dealing with. But it's really built a level of distrust, quite frankly, um, between me and really um, a lot of people in my daughter's life. And that's something that I'm not sure will ever go away anytime soon. What do we say to parents? How can we help parents? Because you know there are parents watching again thinking, oh my gosh, Tracy Walder, like this happened to her and her daughter. Like what, what can a parent do? Is there anything you learned coming out of this that might help someone? I think the first thing to do is go immediately to CPS. I think even if you suspect something, it's always best to go to CPS. I've learned the hard way is probably not best to approach the school first um, because they have their own ideas and their own agenda of how they want that to play out. But this is your child, this is your life, and this is your family. And so it's probably best, in my opinion, to start with CPS. I think the other thing, too, is if you notice behavior changes in your child, document everything, journal that so that you're keeping record of that and seeing if it matches up um, with any of, of, you know, the accusations that are going on about that teacher. So I think those are two things to to really keep in mind. But I also think, too, and this sounds sort of flippant, but but don't second guess yourself. I know I did. um, And I don't want any other parent to do that. Well, you're so brave, Tracy. um, And um, like, I was so disturbed when you first told me this story. Like, I just I wasn't expecting that that happened to your family. And now for you to sort of turn what you went through around into trying to help other people, it's not surprising knowing you because that's just sort of the way uh, you live your life. Um, but we really appreciate it. And I really hope that that we can continue to follow this issue and that, you know, there'll hopefully be changes in the law because it just doesn't seem to make sense that these teachers can just bounce around and no one really knows what, what their history is. So thank you so much, Tracy, for coming on tonight. Thank you for having me, Brian. Okay, we have to take a very quick uh, break, but don't go anywhere. Um, Coming up, what the untrained eye does not see. A body language expert joins me, going to be here live to go over Rex Hurman's words and behavior to see if there are any clues to the deadly double life he's accused of living. We've got that interview video we're going to go through, the video with him from before he was arrested. Is there anything that stands out? We're going to look it over coming up. People who know Rex Hureman uh, worked with him and lived near him. They describe him as a smart and quiet man. Neighbors say he kept to himself. One used the word creepy, uh, but nobody seemed to have expected the architect uh, from Massapequa Park to be arrested and accused of multiple first-degree murders. A serial killer might have been in front of them the entire time. How scary is that? Uh, but we're just now looking, uh, we're, but they were uh, just not look. were they just not looking at Rex Hureman with the right eyes? I want to bring in Susan Constantine. She's a trial strategy expert, jury consultant, uh, and a body language expert. Susan, thank you for, for being with us. We're going to go through some, some uh, clips here in a second, and we're going we're gonna to listen to Rex from an interview uh, that he did before he was caught. And I want to know what you think. But before that, I'm just curious, based on all the pictures that you've seen so far, so far and sort of taking it in, is there anything odd that, that strikes you about Rex Hureman, or do you think he just looked like a regular guy? Well, in looking at the video and the pictures, what I have noticed 
primarily is that he doesn't have the uh, natural uh, affect that a person would have in a conversation. He's very much in control. Um, he, he doesn't emote very well. He takes things very seriously. So when you're looking at his facial expressions, I was wondering, you know, what or if he has been diagnosed with any other sort of learning disability or psychological disorders, because I'm seeing something that's underlying there that I haven't actually pinpointed, but there's definitely something going on. So I want to play the first clip here from this Rex Hurman interview um, where he is telling the interview what he actually does uh, for a living, and we'll talk about it on the other side. I do troubleshooting, architectural troubleshooting, and negotiations with the building department. Okay. What I mean by that is, do we do the standard stuff with the building department, um, handle your filings? When a job that should have been routine suddenly yeah. becomes not routine, Yeah. I get the phone call. Gotcha. Gosh, it's so creepy, Susan. Every time I see one of these clips with this guy and hear his voice, it's like... It's so weird because he, to me, it's maybe it seemed a little odd, but to think of what he's accused of now, I mean, what do you make of that, that, that clip? Well, what I'm looking at in anyone when they're having a conversation about determining what's really important for them. So I'm listening to the words, but I'm also watching the shift of hand movement. So what I found is that he is right hand dominant meaning that most people that are right-handed, they will use their right hand when they talk about things that they believe in, their passions, uh, things that they do and that are believable. The other side, when he doesn't, like when he's talking about the city or other types of um, uh, things that he does that maybe he's not as, as um, you know, passionate about, you'll see him shift gears. And usually that happens in the non-dominant hand. No, this hand gesture, I just really want to tell you one thing. Yep. Um, and then he glances down. It's really interesting how he shifts when he doesn't really agree. And then when he moves in is when he's trying to get your attention. It's more convincing rather than conveying. But overall, when he's using his hand gestures, he stands, stands, stand, uh, he stands within this truth plane, meaning it's between his shoulders and his hips. Mm. And he's kind of moving out this way and in and out. Generally speaking, those are more truthful, um, coming from a more truthful place. Interesting. Oh, I want to get to the second clip. Um, He's telling the interviewer what his most important quality is uh, as he deals with New York officials. Take a listen. Patience, and I don't like to use the word tolerance, but sometimes you have to. Yeah. And it's not just with the city. It's also with the client, because most clients... They don't understand what I have to do, why I have to do it, what it takes to get done. You need the patience because who knows what the person before you did. Sometimes they have very bad days. So we only have about 30 seconds left. Again, every time I just hear his voice, it creeps me out. But it's interesting he's talking about patience there. Yeah, and he also worked, he actually used the word lack of tolerance or tolerance, mm. and he didn't like that word. Well, basically what he did is he described who he is. He's very fastidious. He lacked a tolerance. He's a very serious guy. He's very analytical. Um, he's not a type of person that really takes things lightly, so he's very commanding and in control, and that kind of fits all into his gestures, especially when he's thinking and he's concentrating and he just gives a quick glance and he shifts over, and then his hand gestures 
tells me a lot about his personality that um, even though he seems like a, a harmless guy in a lot of ways, there there's a lot more behind the story, which is what we're finding out. And yes, these are clues to not necessarily what a killer looks like because he doesn't really look like a killer. No, right? he doesn't. No. And he, his voice is his voice is so unique, too. I mean, it, it's just not what you would expect Again, who, who, these guys blend in. You know, what are you supposed to expect? But just to me, it, it really is sort of uh, not what I expected at all. Uh, Susan Constantine, thank you so much for coming on with us on a Friday night. Uh, we appreciate it. I hope you have a great weekend. Thanks. Okay, still to come tonight, a major development in the suitcase murder trial. Sarah Boone, you remember her, supposed to go on trial on Monday for allegedly zipping her boyfriend inside that suitcase. He was in that suitcase left to die. You could hear him kind of squirming and screaming out. Well, there's been changes with the trial. We'll tell you about it coming up next. The so-called suitcase murder trial has been postponed. Sarah Boone's trial was supposed to begin on Monday, but it's now been pushed back uh, to October 2nd. That decision was made during a hearing just today. The judge said it is to give the court more time to deal with some pre-trial issues. Uh, on, a, on September 17th, both sides will meet to determine whether an expert will be approved and paid. Apparently, that's what's holding things up. At some point later that month, uh, Boone will be in court for what they are calling a pre-trial hearing. Now, you'll remember Boone is charged with second-degree murder for allegedly zipping her boyfriend, George Torres, into a suitcase and actually leaving him in that suitcase to die. It's some of the most disturbing video I've ever seen. She says it happened during a drunken game of hide-and-seek. But police found videos on her phone uh, showing her taunting Torres while he was literally begging for help and struggling uh, to breathe. There was also body camera video from outside that apartment that was very, very disturbing. It's going to be a fascinating trial. I will obviously continue to follow the case. We'll bring you any updates. We'll, of course, be covering the trial very, very closely. Uh, That is it for us tonight. That's all the time we have. I'll be back hosting Banfield again uh, next week. Banfield's on a well-deserved vacation. Uh, Cuomo starts now. Chris Cuomo, it's Friday. We're live. So what do you say? Let's get after it. First, we got to look at next week's congressional hearings on UFOs. They're starting to feel a little sketchy. Talk of witnesses being threatened, afraid they're going to lose their jobs, even their lives. We have a GOP member of the Congressional